Uh, we're looking at Theo 21, role of the Holy Spirit. Explain the role of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life, describing the importance of this role in the counseling process. Um, not a lot you're going to have to define here other than the Holy Spirit, um, which we will define this way, who we will define this way. The Holy Spirit is a third member of the triune God. He is a person, not a feeling, force, idea, or movement. Um, and and we've talked about personality in here previously, so I won't belabor this, but um, he is a person though not in bodily form, again, and that's clear from the fact that he has intellect, he has emotions, he has a will. And you see that numerous passages. I won't take the time to go through all those. You have those there for you. And you you know that as well. He knows the mind of God. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, um, which refers to his intellect. Um, he has functions, so he teaches, he prays, he testifies, he convicts. He guides. Uh, John 16 is particularly helpful for those as well as Romans 8, right? He he intercedes for us. So he not only understands the mind of God, he understands our minds as well. Um, again, referring to the fact he has intellect. He has relationships, obviously Trinitarian relationships. He also has relationships with us. He is in us and he is with us. He also has relationship to the world. J- John 16 makes that clear. So he functions in relation to the Uh, all the inhabitants of the world. He can be obeyed. He can be grieved. He can be blasphemed. He can be resisted. He can be lied to. All those denote the fact that he has relationships. So there's no question that um, the Holy Spirit is a person. So I love what Tozer says. Spell this out in capital letters, and then he does. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not an enthusiasm. He's not courage. He's not energy. He's not the personification of all good qualities. So like Jack Frost is the personification of cold weather, actually. The Holy Spirit is not the personification of anything. He is a person. The same as you are a person, though not in material substance. He has will and intelligence. He has hearing. He has knowledge and sympathy and ability to love and see and think. He can hear, speak, desire, grieve, and rejoice in every way. We would say he is a person. James Boyce uh, adds to that, he says, if we think of the Holy Spirit as a mysterious power, uh, may the force be with you kind of a thing, our thought will continually be, how can I get more of the Holy Spirit? But if we think of the Holy Spirit as a person, our thought will be, how can the Holy Spirit have more of me? The first thought is entirely pagan, Boyce says. The second is New Testament Christianity. Um, And don't ask me where I found that. It's Boyce. (laughs) I don't remember uh, what source that came out of. Um, Some essential acts. What does the Holy Spirit do? Um, He creates. Genesis 1-2, we find the Holy Spirit. We find the Holy Spirit in Scripture before we find the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity. And isn't that interesting? Uh, It points to his significance within the Trinity. Um, He's not a second-class member of the Trinity, as he is sometimes considered to be if not explicitly, implicitly, I think he's treated that way. Um, and he is not that at all. Um, he um, he inspires, one of his works is the inspiration of Scripture, Second Peter chapter 1. Um, the virgin birth of Christ, he is, he is the mechanism by which Mary becomes pregnant. I can't believe I didn't put this in your notes, but put the resurrection of Christ. He not only gave Christ... The human body, he not only gave the second person of the Trinity the human body, but he also raised that body along with the Father and with the Son. All three were um, participa- participating in the resurrection. That's Romans 8, 11, that the Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ raised him from the dead. 
Um, he is involved in the regeneration of man. Uh, we'll look at this in a moment. Titus chapter 3 verse 5. So he gives um, life to the Son of God. He resurrects the Son of God from the grave. And in the same way, he resurrects us from our spiritual death. Uh, that's what the re- regeneration of man is. It's the giving of spiritual life. He is our uh, he provides comfort, and that's his name even, right? He's the paraclete. He's the comforter. Uh, John 14, 15, 16, that phrase is used repeatedly there. He's involved in our sanctification. He is the intercessor for man in prayer. Um, so he is, along with the Son of God, at the throne of God. And he receives our prayers. He's He's the one that hears our prayers, and he takes that prayer, and he translates it, if you will, um, not into a different language, but into truth. And then takes that prayer that has been made true and made right according to the will of God, presents it to the Father, and the Father answers um, the Spirit in His request for us. When we don't know what to pray, and I'm sure you've had those moments where you go, Lord, I just just don't know. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to ask. I I I don't know what to think. Um, I, I need help. Well, the, the Spirit knows, and He takes that prayer, and He presents it to the Father and says, "Terry's stuck, <laughs> but here's here's how we need to help him." And Terry gets stuck a lot, um, just like you do. Um, he points people to Christ, and He exalts Christ. Um, so, First uh, John four verse two. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That's the, that's the Spirit's role, is to confess Christ. Uh, the Spirit is a pointer to the exaltation of Christ. And that's where the charismatic um, folks get things off-center. They make, they make the Spirit of God the center when the Spirit of God's fundamental role is to exalt Christ and point people to Christ. John, Jesus himself makes that clear in John 14. And then John makes that clear here in 1 John chapter 4. Um, so he is a pointer to Christ. So you take that list, and that's a that's a pretty good list. That's a pretty good job description, right? And you read through that, and you go, okay, Jesus, uh, excuse me, the Spirit of God is not a second-class citizen within the Trinity, right? He is he is not a lesser member of the Trinity. He is fully a part of the Trinity, obviously, um, and has. Um, every aspect of deity within that triune relationship that is appropriate to the Trinity and um, functions, if you will, as a full member of the Trinity. Um, let's think about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. I won't belabor this, but just to understand that the Holy Spirit was present in the Old Testament. We see him in Genesis 1 too, second verse in the Bible. We see the Holy Spirit, so we know he's there. We know he's functioning, but he did function differently than he does in the New Testament. So his ministry was limited in number. And and by that, I simply mean not every Old Testament saint had the indwelling of the Spirit as we think about it, um, though some did. And so we can look at Saul. Saul had the Spirit of God for a season, and then in rebellion, he lost him. Uh, He didn't lose him. The Spirit was taken away from him. Um, we need to be a little more precise when we're theologians. Um, so Saul had him for a season. David had the Spirit of God. And then Psalm 51, because of his sin, he prays, you know, 
take not your Holy Spirit from me. He was concerned that he, like Saul, would would have the Spirit of God removed from him. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that Daniel has the Spirit of God. Um, but not every Old Testament saint had the Spirit of God. And we know that, and I'm, I'm jumping ahead, but we know that because that's part of the New Covenant promise um, from Ezekiel 37, uh, Jeremiah 33, that because of the New Covenant, when the New Covenant is initiated, then the Spirit of God is given. Uh, the ministry was uh, limited in duration. So just because one had the Spirit of God doesn't mean that they kept the Spirit of God or had the ongoing presence of the Spirit of God uh, all their lives. And Saul is obviously a good example of that, as is Samson, uh, Judges 16.20. Um, the ministry of the Spirit was for particular service. So sometimes in the Old Testament we find, the, hang on just a second, we find the giving of the Spirit for a particular season. So um, Moses... Um, uh, Jethro tells Moses that um, he needs to divide up leadership and portion out responsibilities. And then he says that the spirit would be given to those who are allocated ministry and leadership within the context of the uh, uh, Israelite nation. And they would receive the spirit of God for those tasks. Betsy. That, that's Old Testament. You know, I've, I'm going to see my eye doctor if you need a, if you need a name <laughs> to get your prescription checked. I can give it to you later. Uh, his ministry was for special service. His ministry of salvation was incomplete. And by that, I don't mean that those who died didn't have full salvation. I simply mean by that because Christ had not died yet. And Christ was not resurrected yet. The Spirit could not make Old Testament believers part of the body of Christ. So in that sense, their salvation was incomplete. They're still anticipating it. Just like we're still anticipating the fullness of our salvation. I mean, there's a sense in which our salvation isn't complete either. I mean, we've got a a magnificent gift of so many things in our salvation But none of us is glorified yet, and so we're still looking for that completion. In a similar way, they were looking for unification to the body of Christ. After his resurrection? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Genesis fifteen six. Yeah, that was um, that was just uh, a miracle to demonstrate. This wasn't an ordinary death that just happened. Something really unusual was happening. Like we use the word unique. Like uh, that's a really unique jacket you have. And there's probably like 10,000 of them made or something, right? There's nothing unique about it in that sense. Unique means it's singular. And that Christ's death was singular and those resurrections pointed that. But 
Genesis 15, 6 makes really clear that Abraham was saved. Abraham believed God, God's promise to him, and it was accounted to him, reckoned to him. And it's that that imputation word. It was accounted to him as righteousness. And uh, Romans 4 makes that same point. There's an extended discussion in Romans 4 by Paul about using that very passage to point to the Old Testament salvation uh, or the salvation of believers in the Old Testament that it's by faith and he accounts David's salvation in the same way that David uh, believed and it was accounted to him as sal- as, ri- as righteousness so um, that res- the, 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 the I'll call it resuscitation of those who came to life when Christ died were, that was merely a, a miraculous sign to demonstrate the authenticity of Christ's work as the Messiah and Redeemer does that answer your question? Yeah, thank you. Glenn? I just had this kind of an answer to what she was talking about. Um, because we, we went to Sheol and we didn't have there until uh, uh, we were taken from there to heaven. Well, <clears throat> okay, so Sheol, Sheol is a, br- a really broad term. And it can refer to, um, it can refer to just death in general. It can refer to the place where you don't want to go. And the place where you do want to go. Um, we know that even Old Testament saints, when they died, they went to heaven. How do we know that? Okay. Yep. Okay, good. What else do we know? Transfiguration. Yeah. Because who's he with? Moses and Elijah, right? And Jesus. And they're all standing around. You ever notice this? How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? They'd never seen them. But they knew it's Moses and Elijah. I don't think they were wearing name tags. Hello, my name is. (laughs) But they knew. Yep, they did. They did. They did as well. Yep. Yep. I'm sorry. Oh, he could have, but (laughs) come on, Lee. You're popping my bubble, man. He could have. There's nothing in the text to indicate, though. It's a, it's a spontaneous... It, it reads, and, and we don't know that, right? You've got to be careful. Seriously, you've got to be careful if the Scripture doesn't say it. It's an argument from silence. But you read the text, and it does sound like a, 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 a spontaneous response that uh, Peter gives. Um, okay, we've got to move on. Uh, his ministry, uh, the Spirit's ministry, was present throughout the Old Testament. So we find it in Genesis 1. Um, I just finished preaching through Zechariah about a month ago. And what was interesting to me um, as I went through the book is how how many significant passages in Zechariah talk about the work of the Spirit. So there you've got from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament, the working of the Spirit of God. Uh, actually, some really critical um, aspects of the work of the Spirit uh, in the book of Zechariah, and I've given you a couple of the texts there. Um, now, in the New Testament, we have a more complete manifestation of the work of the Spirit, right? So John 14, I'm going to send you the Helper so that He can be with you. It's better that I go away so that He can come and that He can be with you. Um, <clears throat> and as we're going to see in a few minutes, that's um, that's a fulfillment. Uh, uh, that, that's part of the initiation of the New Covenant. Um, let's talk for just a minute about regeneration. 
uh, regeneration in the Old Testament. How did the Spirit bring about regeneration, or did He regenerate, grant new life in the Old Testament? There was some, I will call it, um, hints of conviction of sin in the Old Testament. So I, I wouldn't be dogmatic and say absolutely He convicts of sin, but there seems to be... Um, this idea that he is convicting of sin, um, I think what, what's helpful is um, Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, The heart is more desperate, uh, excuse me, is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. And then pair that with what Jesus says about what the Spirit does in John 16. Uh, he says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he articulates how he does that in each of those categories, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And you read that and it sounds very much like what he says in Jeremiah 17. I am not, hear me, I am not being dogmatic about that. I would say, uh, and I've, Written, handwritten in my notes, um, that there are hints of conviction of sin. Um, and that's the way I think is probably a better way to say that. What about Judas? Well, that could, we don't know that the Spirit's causing it, right? Because he, he was an unbeliever. He didn't have the Spirit of God. So that could simply be his conscience condemning him. The conscience does that. Uh, transformation of the heart was promised in the Old Testament, uh, which is an aspect of regeneration. We see that Ezekiel chapter 36. And Hebrews 11. Um, Hebrews 11, you need to read from a New Testament perspective, but you also need to read from an Old Testament perspective, right? Because it's telling the stories from the Old Testament text in a sense. Um, so while it's in the New Testament canon, uh, Hebrews 11 is is focused on what was going on during the epoch of the Old Testament. And it assumes that every Old Testament saint was a genuine believer. Um, and you just read that, right? It's all of them. It's by faith, by faith, by faith. And he's making the point. They came to life, came to have salvation by faith. Um, and again, that hints to the regenerating work of the of the Spirit of God, though that wasn't fully defined until the New Testament. So again, I would say it hints at it. It doesn't explicitly say it. Mm-hmm. Melissa. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So imputed righteousness, Genesis fifteen six, and then a host of others. Um, they're they're anticipating Christ. Um, so we've got the cross in the Old Testament. Never mind. In the Old Testament. Lee, come on, dude. So in the Old Testament, they're looking too, right? But there's still faith, 
that leads to life. In the New Testament, we're looking back, but it's the same thing. This one's kind of okay. This one is not. That one is not. You should never have pink. No, that one's dead. Yeah. Yeah. And I... Pink. Seriously. Um, so it's it's always the same thing. Salvation is always by grace through faith. Always is, always has been, always will be. There is no other means of salvation and never has been. Um, where was I reading? Where, uh, I was reading in Second Corinthians this morning um, and it was talking about... Um, Oh, it's, it's just it, it wasn't what I was meditating on through the day. So it's just a vague recollection. Um, the, the 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 ministry of the law produced death doesn't save um, it. And it can't it can't save. Uh, here it is. It's in Second Corinthians three, verse seven. If the ministry of death. In letters engraved on stones. So you're wondering, what does he mean by the ministry of death? And then he tells us, it's it's the letters that are engraved in stones. What's that? Huh? Yeah, Ten Commandments in the Old Testament law, right? It's really clear that that's what he's talking about. And he says that's a ministry of death. And he means by that, you can't be saved by it. All it does is it condemns you and tells you you can't be saved by anything that you can do. So you've got to look to something else. So the law didn't save, never never saved. The only thing that saved is, God, I can't. You've got to save me. And that's what the Old Testament sacrifices are. You're bringing the sacrifice in faith, anticipating the one who will provide an eternal blood that will save you. Yes. Same thing. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing mystical about that cross with a snake on it. Right. It's it's the fact that I'm trusting that how God has decreed salvation will be granted. And I'm trusting means I'm faith. It's the same word. Right. So and it and it produces life. So I'm looking forward. They were looking forward. We're looking backward, but we're all looking to the same thing. And there's there's other language in the New Testament, same thing, right? It's a ministry of condemnation, etc. Uh, in the in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is a producer of new life, so we see that in um, <clears throat> great passage about um, about regeneration, Titus three five. When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. Out of His kindness, um, He loved. And when that was manifested, when that was revealed, verse 5, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. You know, that's the ministry of death. He can't do it. There's nothing enough to, uh, there's nothing righteous enough that you can do. But according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, that's the imparting of new life, and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit that regenerates, that that makes what is dead alive. Um, 
And that's, that's new language in the New Testament. So again, everybody's saved, Old Testament, New Testament, by the cross, but the, the impartation of life through regeneration, that's new language in the New Testament, kind of fleshing out the, the, the Spirit's work. The instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to regenerate men is the Word of God. So the same way that He sanctifies men, uh, you guys are familiar with that. The process of sanctification is the Spirit of God using the Word of God. That's also true about regeneration. He regenerates men through the Word of God. That's First um, Peter chapter one. Um, regeneration and transformation of the heart is realized through the Holy Spirit in the New Testament and the New Covenant is initiated. So we don't have the fulfillment of the New Covenant yet, right? Because we still have to teach men, right? So the fulfillment is there's coming a day when we won't have to be taught anymore because we'll be fully redeemed. So that's not yet being experienced, but it has been initiated because we have received the Holy Spirit. That's part of that New Covenant blessing. Look at you. You, is that purple? Oh, sweet. Royal purple. Man, I'm going to have to do something. Look at that. No, no, we're going to we're going to royalize this. Look at that. (laughs) It's pretty good. Kind of. It's a 50 percenter. Yeah, it's okay. All right. We got to move on. We're having too much fun. Uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit. To receive, to, excuse me, to believe in Christ is to receive the baptism of the Spirit. So if anyone is a believer, are you proving that's a good one? <laughs> you know, Lee, I'm a failure in so many parts of life. You don't have to tell me I can't even use a dry erase marker. I mean, that's... <laughs> Oh, okay. So to believe the believe in Christ is to receive the baptism of the spirit. What is baptism? So we've got a baptism on Sunday morning. Three people are going to be baptized. Okay. okay. It means immersed in water. What's the meaning behind baptism? Okay, one at a time. <laughs> Michael. Okay, good. Um, what, um, what's the question I want to ask? When it says that we are baptized, Romans 6, when we're baptized, what's the Spirit doing? So, like the water that we're going to use on Sunday, there's nothing magical about it. So what's, what is it signifying? Death. Okay. What death? Okay. What other death? It's connecting me to another death. Christ's death. It's a sign. I'm identified with with Christ's Death, burial, resurrection. So it's a connecting. And that's what the Spirit's doing in, bap- in, in spiritual baptism. Is he's identifying us with Christ. Uh, Romans 6 makes this really clear. He's putting us into Christ. 
uh, and we'll talk about that again in just a moment. Okay, yeah, that, but that's not, that's not the spiritual baptism that I'm talking about. So when we talk about the Spirit's baptizing work, we're talking about the fact that He's placed us into Christ. That's what's going on. So He's connected us to Christ. Um, oh, look at that. It's right there in the notes. Um, every believer receives the same Spirit at the point of salvation. So there are some who would say, well, we, you, need, you need to be baptized in the Spirit. No, if you're in Christ, you've already been baptized. I don't need that. I don't need a second work of grace or a second blessing. I've already received that. Every believer receives that at the point of salvation. 1 Corinthians 12 makes that clear. So we would say the Holy Spirit is God's agent in bringing believers into the body of Christ. It's the Spirit's initiation and the Spirit's work that produces salvation, uh, uh, that uh, produces His baptism. So it's all His work. There's nothing that I do that produces my spiritual baptism. It's a gift of God's grace to me as a manifestation, as a part of His saving me. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But when we're baptized, so Michael was baptized a year ago? No, it was not. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess it just shows how old I'm getting. So, so Mike was baptized three years ago. He wasn't baptized for salvation. He was just picturing what had already happened. He, he was picturing with that. In obedience, every believer should be baptized. But he's picturing in that obedience what God has already done and worked in his heart. And a really sweet testimony it was. Uh, and still is. Okay, you're you're going afield. I'll answer that one later. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about the Spirit's baptism, all right? Salvation and baptism of the Spirit are not two separate phases, right? So salvation, if you're saved, you're baptized. It's it's like instantaneously together they're 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 one and the same. Uh, they come together. They're not one and the same, they, but they do come together. To make spirit baptism a separate process from salvation is to tamper with the truth of salvation. Salvation and baptism are one process. Uh, and the arrival of the Spirit through baptism is a powerful demonstration of the faithfulness of God's work that is done for our good and His glory. Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And let's talk about the sealing of the Spirit. Tell me what sealing is. Sealing of the Spirit. A stamp? Mark? Good. What does a stamp do? Ownership? Well, who we belong to? What else? Can't be undone. Preserves. Okay. Authenticates. Yep. So in the Old Testament, this word sealing is used in a bunch of different ways. It's security. Right? 
So think about Daniel and the lion's den. They sealed it. <laughs> He's not going anywhere. Um, nobody's going to tamper with it. He's secure. It's a, it's a sign of authenticity. So Jezebel writes a letter with Ahab's seal. So it's a forgery. <laughs> but it authenticates that it's coming from the king. Or supposedly authenticates. Um, a seal is, is a demonstration of ownership. So Jeremiah purchased a piece of land. And the contract, Jeremiah 32, was sealed and secured with that seal. Um, it also denotes authority. So King Ahasuerus writes a decree with a seal encouraging the Jews to defend themselves against Haman's plot in Esther chapter 8. Um, and the seal enables them to do that. It's authoritative. So if you put all that together, what you have is this. When you talk about sealing, we're, biblically, we're talking about something that is owned, kept, made safe by another. The one who is sealed is protected and secured. Never broken. Permanently. I like that. You can add that to your notes. So um, Ephesians 1 verse 13. So Ephesians 1, you'll remember the first, starting in verse 6. Uh, excuse me, verse 3 through verse 6. We have the work of the Father in salvation. Verses 7 to 11. Uh, 12, we have the work of the Son in salvation. Verses 13 and 14, we have the work of the Spirit in salvation. Uh, verse 13, in him, you also in Christ, you also, after lif- listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise. So let's just take a look at some of the things that Paul is saying with that. The sealing work of the Spirit is done at the time of salvation. And we'll, we'll tease that out in just a moment. But um, we need to see that when we're saved... Uh, we are sealed, we're protected, kept, made safe permanently by the Spirit of God. The sealing work of the Spirit is done apart from any action on our own, right? So you read that, um, having believed, you were sealed. So he doesn't say seal yourself, but he says someone else is acting on your behalf to bring about this sealing work in your life. Um, the sealing work is only for believers. How do you know it's only for believers? I'm, Melissa? Okay. From the text, how do you know it's only for believers? Look at the text. Two words. Having believed. So only those who have believed are sealed. If you haven't believed, you can't be sealed. If you are sealed, you have believed. Right? So they go... They go hand in hand. It's only for believers. Like in dwelling and baptism, sealing is not a process, right? So having believed, you were sealed. So the belief happened in the past, and at that same time, um, that also happened. The sealing also happened. It's not procedural. It's not done over time. It's done instantaneously. Um, interestingly, there's never a command that we're ever need to be sealed again. Um, this is interesting. The Spirit is both the one who seals and He is the seal. So He seals us and keeps us secure, but He's also the seal itself. So He puts the stamp and He is the stamp, if you will. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, 
verse 22 says he gave us the spirit. Um, the purpose of the seal is not only to identify us as God's, but to serve as a promise of God's future full redemptive work for us. So notice this uh, in verse 14. He is given as a pledge of our inheritance. And what's the significance of that? It is with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So the seal is looking forward. So he gives it now. We have it now. But the reason for giving it now is to to encourages, encourage us that the fulfillment is coming. And we're safe with that fulfillment. Um, couple of implications of sealing because we have been sealed we are secure if you have a counselee that's struggling with security this is a place you can go to really encourage them you're safe um, when you've got the spirit of god you're you're safe and obviously then what you've got to do is help them to determine is there fruit of the spirit of god in their life that you could say you've got the spirit of god you're safe uh, you don't want to give them security security and a sense of safety when they're not in Christ. But if you can help them to self-evaluate the fruit of their lives, um, that'll be helpful to them. Because we've been sealed, we're secure. Because we've been sealed by this Holy Spirit, we are enabled to live like Christ. Before I could not ever do anything to be like Christ, to live like Christ, and now I can. Um, He's told us how to live and he's enabled us to live that way. Um, yikes hi-ho indwelling of the spirit the indwelling of the spirit refers to the truth that the Holy Spirit lives within each individual believer and lives there permanently Michael (laughs) Um, when we say the spirit indwells believers we're not talking about a location okay we're talking about a relationship He's spiritual. The Spirit of God is a spirit. He's not a physical being. So he, is, he cannot be said to be spatially present within believers. So when we say that we're, with the Spirit's in us, we're not talking about location. Uh, we'll talk about this in just a moment. But we're talking about empowerment and we're talking about relationship. Um, Lance Quinn, uh, in an, an article called The Indwelling Holy Spirit, Um, This is probably from 10 or 15 years ago. um, Says this, because the Holy Spirit is God and therefore the creator of the physical universe, he is perfectly capable of transcending the physical spatial dimension in order to bring about all his spiritual ends with regard to the believer's life. So when we talk about the spirit being in us, we don't mean that there's this space in us in which he inhabits But because he's God, he can transcend the spatial and be with us. Um, And before you push back too hard and say, no, but it's in, yes. We also use, New Testament language also uses this phrase, that the believer is in Christ. And we don't mean by that we're spatially in Christ. Right? That doesn't make any logical sense. When we say we're in Christ, what do we mean? We belong to him. He is mine and I am his. Now, we're talking about relationship. We're talking about fellowship. And that's what we're talking about 
with regard to the Holy Spirit. In fact, that, that little preposition that's translated in can also be translated with. And I think often that gives a better sense that the Holy Spirit is with us. We're never alone. Just like Jesus was with the disciples, the Holy Spirit is with us constantly in our presence, guiding, directing, etc. So it's not like he's, you know, in this little cranny in my brain. No, no, no. But yeah, right. I've got a, I've got a Holy Spirit lobe that's invisible. That's not what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah, but well, the but the body there is the church. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So again, we're not we're not talking spatial. We're talking identity and relationship. So the spirit is in us in that way that he belongs to us. Um, oh, there we go. The word in is denotes relationship, not location. Um, John 14, he is given as the promise of, the, of Christ. Uh, Ephesians 1, we've already noted, noted this. He is given at the time of salvation. So when we believe, then he's given. 1 Corinthians 6, he is given to all believers. All believers, even the ones that aren't quite as godly as you might want them to be. Right? <laughs> Which is what some of your counselees are going to be. Not all your counselees are coming because of sin issues, right? Some are just coming because they're hurting and they're pain, they're suffering. Um, sometimes physical pain, sometimes spiritual pain, sometimes trying to sort out um, when people have sinned against them, those kinds of things. Um, but some of your counselees will be coming because of sin issues and they're genuine believers. They're just struggling. Well, they've got the spirit of God, even even when at times it doesn't look like it. Yes, if they're believers, they have the spirit of God. Uh, he's given as a promise of the future. He is given. Never to be taken away. So unlike David who prayed, don't take him away. Um, he is ours perpetually. Filling of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> to be filled by the Spirit means to live under the control of the Spirit. Uh, under the domination of the Spirit. Uh, the filling of the Spirit has often been confused with a lot of things. So let's let's identify what the filling of the Spirit does not refer to. It does not refer to a second act of blessing after salvation that produces advanced spirituality. It's not a spiritual zap that moves you from disobedience to obedience, from dissatisfaction to satisfaction. Um, the Spirit of God sanctifies us just the way a child grows physically, right? It's day by day, moment by moment, meal at a time, exercise at a time, um, over time growing into full maturity. So uh, similarly, believers grow incrementally. Sometimes, just like your kids, have these growth spurts, right? And you look at them and you go, what happened? In you know, two months, you grew three inches. And that happens. And it happens for believers too. Sometimes there's the, these massive um, growth spurts. But in general, it happens incrementally. Filling is not a reference to the indwelling of the Spirit of God, right? We are, every believer is always immediately indwelt by the Spirit of God. Filling is not a process of progressively receiving Him by degrees or doses. John uh, 3, Jesus says that He gives the Holy Spirit without measure. So it's not like Jesus says, let me give you the Holy Spirit. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you a piece of him today. I'll give you a little bit tomorrow. And like in two years, I'll give you a little bit more. And maybe by the time you die, you'll have all the Holy Spirit. No, 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 no. He doesn't parcel him out in pieces. 
When we get the Holy Spirit, we get all of the Holy Spirit. Filling is not the same as the baptism of the Spirit. Again, we've already talked about what baptism is. It's not the same as being sealed or secure. It's also not the so-called charismatic gifts. So what is the filling of the Spirit? Well, if Ephesians chapter 5, if you're still in Ephesians, you can just flip over a couple of pages. Verse 18, he says, Do not be drunk with wine. That's dissipation. That's wasteful. But be filled with the Spirit. And then he tells how to be filled with the Spirit or manifestations of the Spirit of God working in you, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, etc. Um, that word there, filled, simply means something like to be controlled. Um, to be filled and controlled has the idea of, of pressure, right? So the Spirit puts pressure, just like wind puts pressure on the sail of a boat, fills that sail, and then the boat is propelled through the water. That's filling, right? So it's putting pressure. Um, it guides, it directs. It also has the idea of per, uh, permeation. So the Holy Spirit saturates the believer's life. So that, um, think about... Um, the sponge that Jesus was offered on the cross, it said it was filled with, with, um, with vinegar, right? And same word, it's saturated. So it's completely consumed by the Spirit of God. And that's the same idea. Uh, boats, Luke chapter 5, were filled with fish. Individuals, Acts 13, filled with awe. So when the Spirit fills a believer, he is saturated by the Spirit of God. Um, also has the idea of domination and control. So Luke chapter 5, again, people are filled with fear. Luke chapter 6, they're filled with rage. So when we say he's filled with rage, we mean he is controlled. He's, he's guided by, he's directed by his rage. And it's like it's, it's everything else, is, it's almost like he's irrational. Um, so great is his consumption uh, with rage. So as we think about filling, what we mean by filling, what the text means, Ephesians 5.18 about filling, is that the Spirit controls and directs the believer. He's under the domination, control, authority of the Spirit so that the Spirit does in, in his life what only the Spirit of God can do. Um, what's unusual about filling from everything else we've talked about is that it is a command. Did you see that? Do not be drunk with wine. Do not be controlled by wine. Instead, what should you be controlled by? You should be filled with the Spirit. Be filled. That's an imperative. So in the Greek text, if you'd look it up and you say, what kind of, what kind of verb is this? It's an imperative. It's a command. So it's something that you do. We, are, we don't seal ourselves. We don't baptize ourselves. We don't indwell ourselves. But we, there is a sense, excuse me, there is a sense in which we are responsible for filling, being filled by the Spirit. So it is a command. Um, so that means that filling is a matter of obedience. It also means that sometimes believers are filled and sometimes they are not filled. Sometimes they're, let's say it a different way, controlled by the Spirit of God. And sometimes they're not controlled by the Spirit of God. 
When are they not controlled by the Spirit of God? Anytime they're sinning. Because the Spirit of God never produces sin. So anytime you see somebody in sin, or anytime you are in sin, you can say to yourself, uh, I'm not being controlled by the Spirit of God. What spirit am I being controlled by? <laughs> spirit of the flesh, right? And there's probably something particular to my flesh that is driving me in that moment. And that's what I want to find out. Um, notice as well uh, that it is conditional. Right, Be filled with the Spirit. It's dependent on obedience. The Spirit indwells every believer, but not every believer is filled always, constantly, by the Spirit. Not every believer is constantly being controlled by the Spirit. They're not always operating under the control of the Spirit. So the Spirit doesn't dwell. The Spirit's saying, hey, I've got a word for you. In this book, I've got some guidance and direction, and we reject it, and not filled, not controlled, and we act that way. Um, and that's that. That's the reality for all of us, right? Um, notice as well, it's repeated. It's not a constant condition. So once you're baptized, once you're indwelt, once you're sealed, that's constant. But filling is intermittent. And it, it, I mean, it happens just day by day, right? You leave in the morning and you've got your favorite cup of coffee that your spouse made for you. And it's just the right temperature and everything is really good. And you talk about the day with your wife. You go out the door. You kiss her goodbye. And everything is good. And you get on the car like I did coming here this evening. And you come to a screeching halt like hundreds of yards before that you've ever run into traffic on that road before. And you go, what in the world? And you start fussing. <laughs> so when you left the house, everything was great. You're under the control and domination of the spirit. Three minutes later, <laughs> what happened? The flesh happened, right? But you know that that's a reality for you guys, right? I'm not the only one that lives in that world, am I? Yeah, no. no, thank you. Um, so, so our being controlled by the Spirit can be that intermittent, right? So it's not a constant condition. Notice this as well. While it's a command, it's also a passive. Which means, and it's translated very well, by the New American, and I think most of them get it this way, be filled. So I'm responsible, it's an imperative, but it's also a passive, which means somebody else has to act on my behalf. I don't fill myself with the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who fills me. But to make that a command, essentially what he's saying is don't quench the Spirit. He's going to do what he's going to do. Stop quenching him. Let him do his work is what the sense of that is. Does that make sense? So it's, a, it's an imperative, but it's a passive. You know, normally with an imperative, I would say, I would say to my girls when they're little, um, I need you before, you before you leave the house for school today, I need you to make sure to make your beds. Make your beds. That's the command. That's the imperative. What do they do? They go into the bedroom and they make their beds, right? But the passive um, is, you, we would say something like, um, have your beds be made. Mm-hmm. 
The housekeeper, <laughs> says the owner of the B&B, <laughs> right? So if the passive sense simply means let it be done, right? Don't, which is why I say, and, and this is New Testament language, it's Ephesians, right? Don't quench the spirit of God. Don't, don't let him, don't, don't try and stop him from doing what he does. Okay, that's another question for another day. That's okay. not. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so we, we simply want to focus on the fact that we've got a responsibility to synergistically work with the Spirit of God, right? So there, there are parts of our salvation that are monergistic. God alone acts. And then there are parts of our salvation that are synergistic. We've got responsibility. Um, we don't have ultimate responsibility, but we do have responsibility. And part of that is I've got to be filled with the Spirit. I've got to submit myself to Him. Um, now, the question ultimately is, how do how do I get filled by the Spirit? Okay. Ask. Ernest. Ah, stealing my thunder. What's the verse? Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And if you take, and we don't have time to do it, but take those two, two verses, Ephesians 5.18.19 and Colossians 3.16, and what you'll find is everything is the same in structure except the controlling verb. In Ephesians, it's be filled with the Spirit. In Colossians, it's uh, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And it means the same thing. The Spirit of God fills us when we are controlled by the Word of God. So how do you get filled? Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Um, so the Word of the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and makes the man of God. So when we read the Holy Spirit, that's when we're not being filled. Yes, and we're not being submissive to the Word of God. Lee. Keep coming. Well, I'm just saying that the filled implies pouring. Yep. But there is no pouring. It's not spatial. And there's no getting. So I, I, I look at it as it confuses us because I sure. it's more of a figure of speech. Because we still have a better way in our brains to think is when we see filled and controlled. Yep. Because then I better understand what the word is implying. So is it. Sure. No, I, th- I, th- I, th- I think that's a good way to say it. And, and if you'll notice, even as we've been talking, I've used the word fill and I look over and I'm seeing glazed eyes and I say controlled. And it's like, oh, OK. Right. Because that makes sense. And that's really what he's that's really what he's talking about. That that impulse of the spirit to guide us like that wind filling the sail of the boat. Right. Saturating us uh, with his word. That's true. Okay. Well, I mean, that's that's one of the senses I gave, right? It's saturated. Right, but we're not talking spatially, and that's what Lee's getting oh, at. Okay, okay. Right. Yeah. Abide in the vine. Again, and that's a figure of speech as well, right? Okay. Um, 
chafer, to be filled with the Spirit is to have the Spirit fulfilling in us all that God intended him to do when he placed him there, when God placed the Spirit in us or with us. To be filled is not a problem of getting more of the Spirit. It is rather a problem of the Spirit getting more of us. Right, So us being more submissive to him and to his word. Um, sin against the Holy Spirit. Uh, what page am I on? <laughs> um, let me just cut to the chase. Do you have many blanks? Do you have many blanks here? Yeah. Okay, at the summary section. Okay, let's just go down to that. In summary, and we don't have time to go back to um, Matthew chapter 12, but in summary, the sin that is... I say we can't go back. We've got to if I'm going to make any sense out of it. So in Matthew 12, and you'll get people that, that, um, that have questions about this. In Matthew 12, Jesus casts out a demon. Uh, side note, demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. So he's demon-possessed. The manifestations of this demon was that it produced blindness and muteness was brought to Jesus, and what does it say in the text? He healed him. Side note, Pallison does a brilliant job of this in his book. Um, no, um, Power Encounters, which has been reissued under a new title, and I can never remember the new one. He notes that Demon possession is almost always in the New Testament oppression. People don't do things that bring about demon possession like participating in the occult. It is, it is oppression, living in a fallen world just like blindness and sick and, 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 um, muteness. Um, and if you look at it often, as it does in this text, when it talks about demon possession, it talks about it in terms of healing, which is not how we think about it. We think cast them out. No, no, no. It's it's healing. They've not done anything wrong. This is something that's happened to them, just like cancer or a car accident. That's a side note. That was free. They protest and they say, oh, this is just essentially Satan. Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, throwing out the demons. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says to them, kingdom divided itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How does his kingdom stand? It doesn't make sense. If Satan's going to throw out Satan, then he's killing his own kingdom. Why would he do that? If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, that's key. So when Jesus is casting out demons, it is under the authority and the power of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is authenticating the work of Jesus. Just like miracles authenticated that Jesus was the Messiah. So it's the, it's, it's the authentication of the messianic work that's going on. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, the kingdom of God is here. The Messiah is here. That's what he's saying. And the Spirit of God is authenticating that. 
And he teases that out a little bit more. Verse 31, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Blasphemy can be forgiven. So there are people now who say, well, did I commit the sin of blasphemy that keeps me from being forgiven? No, Jesus says explicitly that blasphemy can be forgiven. Any kind of blasphemy can be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Which blasphemy of the Spirit? The Spirit that authenticated that when Jesus healed, He's the Messiah. And that's a sin that cannot be replicated. That was a sin that was particular to that day. When Jesus healed, the Spirit is saying, Look at the Messiah! He's here! The kingdom is here! And they say, no, that's not the Messiah, that's Satan. That's a sin that can't be replicated. And he says, that's the sin that can't be forgiven. In other words, they've rejected the Messiah. And now they've been, like Pharaoh, hardened in that sin, and that will not be forgiven. So when you have people coming to you, oh, I don't, you know, I did this, I did this, and I'm worried that it's the sin of the, the blasphemy of the Spirit. Jesus is explicit. Blasphemy can be forgiven. Isn't that amazing? And uh, in fact, my text for Sunday morning makes that very point. Paul says that he was a blasphemer against God and he's forgiven. So it is forgiven. It's just that sin that happened in that day, in that context. That is a sin that can't be forgiven. That's... You need to go back and fix it? Okay. All right. Um, gifts of the Spirit. I'm just going to run through this because you guys are familiar with this. I'm not going to tell you. The, the gifts are gifts of grace. 1 Corinthians 12 makes that clear. They're various. The source and purpose is the same. In other words, they come from the Spirit of God. Uh, the gifts are exercised by the, by the individual, but God is still the one who does the work. 1 Corinthians 12 makes that clear. Verse 6. Did I go too fast? Do you get that? Um, the gifts are supernatural, not natural. So someone might be a naturally naturally gifted teacher, right? They might teach math really well. That doesn't mean they have a spiritual gift of teaching. That's something different. That's They can take the Word of God and they open it up when they start explaining and people go, ah, now I get it. Same with leadership, same with giving, same with everything, right? Sometimes there is a correlation, but very often there's not a correlation. Um, we're talking about something that is supernatural, not that is natural. Gifts are for each individual believer and they're to be used in serving others, right? So every believer gets a gift and the reason for the gift is not for themselves ultimately, but for the service of others and the building up of others. Now, when you use your gift, do you benefit? Well, yeah, obviously. That's part of the way that you mature in Christ, but it's not ultimately for you, though you benefit along the way. Um, it is for uh, the benefit of the body. The gifts are used in proportion to the grace that gave them to us. Uh, Romans 12.6 The gifts are given according to the Spirit's will, not about worthiness or unworthiness. So it's not a matter of, oh, I got this gift, I must, no, 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 I must be really good. No, no, no. You got that gift because of the grace of the Spirit of God that says, I'm going to give you that gift. Oh, I didn't get that gift that I really want, so I must not be worthy. No, no, no. It has nothing to do with worthiness and unworthiness. It's just the way the Spirit decided to apportion it. It's His 
responsibility. It's his privilege. It's his wisdom that has given you exactly what you need. Um, The gifts are for the benefit of the entire church. Uh, Ephesians 4 makes that clear. Uh, If you want to know where the gifts are, you've got a long list of them there. I think uh, your 12s and 4s, right? Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. Uh, Give us the lists. I personally believe that the lists are not complete because there's no complete overlapping of gifts. Every list is different from the others in some way. And so I think there are representative lists. I will not venture other guesses about what some of the other gifts are, though I am quite certain that there is not a gift, a spiritual gift of shopping, as somebody tried to convince me one day. I think she was I think she was joking. Um, so, but I, th- I think there probably are other gifts and there certainly is a mixture of gifts. So everybody gets at least one, some get more than one, you know, so some are 20% this and 30% this and 50% this. So you've got this really interesting mix. And even with just the ones we've got, you have, I don't know, probably billions of different kinds of combinations that you could have of giftings. Uh, Sign gifts were authenticating gifts that ceased to exist after the completion of the biblical canon. So prophecy, tongues, miracles, healing were all given simply to authenticate the messengers that were coming with the new revelation of Jesus Christ. When the canon is complete, the canon authenticates the message and there's no more need for those gifts. Fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Fruit is different than gifting, obviously. Um, We are going to... um, You have that little chart. You have a little chart, uh, maybe the next. Yeah, there you go. So that little chart identifies some of the distinctions between fruit and gifts. Spiritual fruit is corporal. In other words, it goes to the body. It's a common command and it is singular. So there are nine aspects to the fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc., etc. But it's considered to be one fruit. So if you have the fruit, you have manifestations of all of it where gifts are plural there's a multiplicity and i may have one or more but i won't have all of them right Um, and spiritual gifts are for the individual Um, spiritual fruit is for the corporate body and spiritual fruit is common you know common kind of purposes spiritual gifts are given to for particular equipping um the gift, excuse me, the fruit is so that we will look like Christ, live like Christ instead of like the world. Instead of losing the battle to the flesh, we will win the battle with the flesh. That's Galatians 5. Instead of carrying out the desires of the flesh, we carry out the desires of the spirit. Again, that's Galatians 5 as well. That list in Galatians 5, you can divide it up this way. I'm not going to be super dogmatic about this, but I think this is helpful. Some of the fruit will be inward. That is, there are characteristics that reflect a transformed heart. Love, joy, peace. That's the first three. The second three seem to be outward. Patience, kindness, goodness. They're they're things that we reflect towards others. We act towards others with patience, with kindness, with goodness. And then the last three seem to be upward. Uh, Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They're our act of worship towards God, if you will. Um. Again, I said seem to be, right? So I'm qualifying that. I'm not being dogmatic, but I I think you can make an argument of putting them in those kinds of categories.
Because of the work of the Spirit in his life, the believer thinks rightly, that's inward, relates graciously towards others, that's outward, and worships faithfully, that's upward. So he's transformed from the inside out. So change, producing fruit, having fruit produced through him, inside and then outside him. Um, I gave you, I don't know how many passages of that, 20 or more passages that refer to the Holy Spirit. We've alluded to a bunch of those along the way. Um, Importance of the Spirit for biblical counseling. Regeneration is the work of the Spirit, not the counselor. So regeneration is a monergistic work. How's that helpful to you? You don't have to do it. What's your responsibility as a counselor? Share the gospel. I'm sorry. Yeah, my responsibility is take this book, open it up, explain it to the best of my ability, and then get out of the way and let the Spirit do His work. All right? So I can go home at night, and I've done this, put my head on my pillow, and say, Lord, this guy's not changing. This guy's rebelling. Would you change? I put my head on my pillow and I go to sleep because my job's done. Right? I don't have to be anxious about it. I don't need to worry about it. I've been faithful. Now let the Spirit do His word, work through the Word. Um, sanctification is the work of the Spirit in cooperation with the obedience of the believer. It's a synergistic work. So while salvation is monergistic, we can also say you've got to do this. This is not optional. However, you've got the Spirit of God to help you do that. right? So you've got a responsibility but it's not all on you. It's it's only going to be accomplished through the Spirit and everything that, this, that you need, the Spirit is going to provide you, which is so hopeful. And again, when we say the Spirit of God is giving you everything you need, He's given it here, right, in, in the Scriptures. And then finally, the Spirit is fully able, available to all believers equally and works in all believers fully and to the same purpose, which is helpful for the counselor as well because the counselor also needs change and transformation. I know because I've sat on that side of the desk. And I know my heart, right? And I know the things that I'm struggling with. And I need that change. I need that transformation. And the Spirit of God is just as available to me as He is to the counselee. And that's astoundingly helpful and really critical and essential. Um, Oh, yeah, that was the last point. The counselor also is as much in need of transformation. The Christian life, MacArthur says, begins and continues by the power of the Spirit, whom God has graciously sent first to awaken us to our need for salvation, then to give us a new birth, and finally to dwell within us to eventually present us flawless when Christ returns. Amen. Let me pray and you can go home. Thanks, Father, for the evening. Thank you for time together thinking about the Spirit of God. Thank you for His provision for us. Thank you for the life that He is to us. We are grateful. Uh, Thank you that uh, when we go to counsel, encourage, disciple, that we have what we need in the Spirit and the Spirit's Word to effectively help people. Uh, Might you make us uh, wise stewards of the Spirit's Word Would you make us submissive and filled, controlled by the Spirit so that that your people will grow in accordance with the Spirit's provision? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.